When I was in youth group, I had a friend who had invited me around Halloween time to something called a hell house. I was excited. I was excited because I was born with what writer Lint Hatcher calls the spooky gene. For some reason, I've always been drawn to things that were a little spooky. And growing up, I liked to go to haunted houses or the hay rack ride out in the farm fields. That was all good fun for me. So I was shocked to show up at a hell house that took place in a church building. Each room we walked into was a different vignette demonstrating the evils and dangers of certain sins that you could commit. Usually sins we preach to youth group kids. There was one that was talking about premarital sex. There was another one that was talking about drug use and alcohol use. And usually the people in the vignettes ended up dead. And at the very end of it all, we had a a vision of hell, the imagination of hell in probably the fellowship hall. (laughs) That's hilarious, actually. And there, we were told that if we were doing one of these sins and died in the process, we would end up in hell. The whole hope of the hell house trend was to try to get kids to commit their lives to following Jesus Christ. I have to say it scared me more than any haunted house I had ever been to. Hell is in the imagination of us all in some way, some shape, some form. It's not just in the text of Scripture that we read about it or think about it with our faith life. It's presented in media all the time. Today, it's the underlying question of the questions that we're dealing with. You see, we're still in that sermon series called Journeying Through Doubt, where we've asked the congregation about hard questions of the faith, and we thought we'd try to engage them with not just only the scriptures, but the great tradition to see if there's something in that great tradition of Christianity that can help us with our doubts and our worries and our concerns and some of the harder bits of faith. So the questions asked go like this. What happens to a baby who dies who's yet to be baptized? What happens to the unrepentant sinners in the world when they die? Where do they go? What happens to the people who have yet to hear the gospel? They were not born in a particular place or time to hear the gospel. They were born somewhere far away from the gospel's message. Do they go to hell? And so these are the questions that we're going to try to think through today with this passage of Scripture. And so the sermon is titled, Hell Yes, Hell No, Hell Maybe. Because I don't think the question is all that easily answered when we think about what hell should be or is. As an aside, and maybe to make you giggle, whenever I was asked what the title of my sermon was, I texted it to Sarah Brasington, our family life director, and autocorrect changed it. So it said, hello, yes, hello, no, hello, maybe, which sounds like lyrics to some sort of song, doesn't it? So what happens in these cases? Many Christians are, in fact, motivated by the concept of hell 
the concept of eternal torment that smells of sulfur, that is filled with fire and is the home of the devil and his fallen angel friends. When I was a kid, I had a, a dentist who's now a Methodist minister, and he was the son of a Methodist minister. Now, I love this dentist, but I will say he had the annoying habit of telling me about 12 jokes while he had all his instruments in my mouth, and nobody laughed at their jokes harder than he did. So you have all these things in your mouth and he'd be jiggling with laughter. <laughs> yeah. He told me, because he knew I was studying for the ministry, that his father was a minister. And he said, do you know what he tells people when he's going on vacation? You see, here's the funny little thing about being a minister. When you're on an airplane or at a beach or somewhere and someone does the whole, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a preacher. People get a little weird around you. Sometimes they overcompensate and they want to tell you everything about faith. They want to show you what they know. Sometimes people want to sit somewhere else. So my dentist's father had a nice line. He said, when people said to him, what do you do for a living? He'd say, I sell fire insurance. Some Christians are, in fact, motivated by the concept of hell and perdition. Just about a decade ago, there was a Twitter argument in the Christian corner of the Twitterverse between a preacher, a famous preacher in the Calvinist camp of things named John Piper and kind of an emerging church leader who's no longer a pastor named Rob Bell. Rob Bell had written a book, it had yet to hit the stands, and the book was called Love Wins. And in that book, Rob Bell explored the concept of universal salvation. The idea that there is no hell and that everyone would make it into the salvation graces of God. Another simple way of just saying this is everyone gets into heaven. Now the book hadn't even yet come out and Piper got on Twitter and he said these simple words, goodbye, brother Rob, as if to say not only did he disagree with his theological interpretation, but that now Rob was no longer even in the fold of the faith. I was a pastor at another church at the time, and somebody asked me, they said, Jared, have you read Rob Bell's book or do you plan to? And I had a cheeky answer, and I admit, it's cheeky. I said, no, if I want to read a Christian universalist, I'll read someone much better than Mr. Bell. Because here's the thing. What he wrote about is not new. All the way back in the very first centuries of the church, ancient Christian church fathers sometimes had a universalist understanding of salvation. It's not new. It's present within the tradition. Not all of them agree, but I've spent this last week reading the likes of Athanasius and Origen, sometimes pronounced Oregon, all these great thinkers on some of their viewpoints on the very topic. But you don't have to go that far back. You don't have to read texts that are a bit esoteric for people who haven't been initiated. You can go to C.S. Lewis, that great cultural theological commentator and novelist, in the mid-20th century, he espoused an idea that most people who've read him call annihilationism. That's the idea that when we die, we will be with God, or if we do not accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and repent of our sins, perhaps we would just 
have our souls, our identities, our personhood, our spirits, whatever you want to call it, perhaps we would be annihilated. Because for a guy like Lewis, he did not see justice and could not imagine a just God holding a person's identity in the torment and lake of fire called hell for all eternity. I'm a pastor. Didn't we just read a passage of scripture where Jesus just said something about hell? Did we? Let's take a cursory understanding of the Old Testament's understanding and outlook about the afterlife. You see, back in the Old Testament, you can't really come across a lot of passages about heaven. That's a developed concept over time. But you also don't come across a whole lot of passages that talk about hell as an eternal place of perdition. There's another term. It's called Sheol or Sheol, and that stands in for the abode of the dead. We really don't know a lot about it, in fact. It's just the imagination that when your ancestors die, they're in death. They're in death. Hebrews also had another word, not just Sheol, but they had the bosom of Abraham, another phrase to talk about being dead with the world of your ancestors, Abraham being the original one called by God and the people of God. Later, when the Greek and Roman world influenced the Middle East, then you have the concept of Hades. But again, it means the dead, the place of the dead. Now we're walking through the New Testament, and yes, you can point out to me many places where the word hell is brought up or the lake of fire or being cast out into the fire. But I want you to understand that when you go to the Greek language, there isn't one word that's used in all these cases that means hell. There are many words. And what happens is the, the translators, when they translate, are also doing the work of interpretation. I know that's complicated to understand, but the reality is you can't translate something without also bringing yourself to it, so you're also interpreting it at the same time because you choose one word over another word. So in the passage today, when Jesus is saying it's better to be lame, it's better to be um, have not all of your body with you than to be thrown into hell, what he's referring to is this place called Gehenna, or the Valley of Gihon, which is a physical spot that you can go and approximately see today it's on the outside gates of Jerusalem's walls. Now, <clears throat> for a lot, of time, a lot of years, people said, well, this was an ancient garbage bit, pit, uh, pit for the people of Jerusalem. They burned stuff there, smelled like fire and smelled like sulfur. And hence you have the metaphor, Gehenna is like this hellish space. There's really not a lot of archaeological evidence for that claim. No matter what people, it's, sell, it's a good, it's a good, it preaches well. But there's not a lot of good archaeology to back it up. But you can think of it this way. What is the city of Jerusalem? It's the holy city. What's in the middle of the holy city? The holy hill. And what's the top of the holy hill? 
the temple and who lives right in the middle of the temple? God. Gehenna is outside the city gates. Jesus is saying, it's better for you to lose your eye and your hand than to be removed from the presence of God. What else really would hell be anyway besides a place distant from God? Now, I believe in hell. I've been there. I bet you have too. I have a friend. His sister is a really uh, suffering alcoholic. She went to the doctor. She was aspirating blood in her esophagus. Her liver had significant damage. And at first, she was in straight denial about the whole thing. The numbers looked so bad, it looked like death was actually imminent. And she disappeared. And mom and dad called her and found her. And she found herself in a hotel room surrounded by many bottles of vodka, alone, suffering. That's hell. Being cut off not only from the connection we have to our Creator and Redeemer, but from everyone else, and to be in a set, a stance of self destruction. But think about what the text is telling us this morning. It's better to lose your eye or your hand than to be removed from God because you see, it's better to avoid sin because it's the sinning that we do that punishes us. It's the sinning that we do that creates for us a world that's unbearable and suffering pain and connects us or disconnects us from those that we love. Look through the lists of sins in Scripture and tell me how they don't self-destruct you or others in your path. So I believe in hell. That doesn't mean I don't struggle with the concept of an ontological place called hell. Ontology is a fancy word. It means physically real. I do, in fact, confess to you that I struggle with that concept or at least the notion that there is an eternity of torment for people. Why do I struggle with it? Because like I'm trying to demonstrate in our text, the Bible isn't very clear on it. Many different words are used in many different biblical genres. They take on different metaphors. And what's very clear to me is that when we have popular notions of hell in our mind, we're actually describing what I find in Dante's Inferno far more than what I'm finding in the Bible itself. It's the medieval period and books like Dante that have actually shaped the imagination, the popular imagination of what a hell is. And what's more than all that is that hell isn't really that good of a reason to be a Christian. I know it's a good sales pitch, isn't it? Like, I'm going to follow Jesus so I don't go there. That's a great sales pitch. But that's not really the reason that we're called to follow the way of Jesus. We're called to follow the way of Jesus because only in following Jesus do we learn what it means to truly be human. 
We learn what it really means to express the image of God. We learn what it means to live a life of love and self-giving. We learn what it means to be embraced by God, and we learn to love ourselves. These are reasons to follow the way of Christ. This is what we're offered in Scripture far more than an offer based solely in fear. Now, I know that many of you might struggle with this this morning, and I do too, because we grew up learning a certain way of talking about hell, and it's all around us. And in fact, it may be a real place. I'm not saying it's not. But is belief in hell as a place one of the essential beliefs? Dee and I were teaching Starting Point several years ago. And um, someone said, well, what's Peachtree Christian Church all about? I said, well, we're the, part of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. The overall movement's called the Stone Campbell Movement, and we believe in the essentials unity, in the opinions liberty, in all things charity. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Between us and other Christians, it's the essentials that we'll unite on, it's in opinions we'll have liberty and make space for each other, but in everything we're going to love each other. That, that sounds good, doesn't it? But a gentleman raised his hand and said, what are your essentials? And that's where the question gets complicated. Because another aspect of our faith tradition is that we've said since the beginning that we're not creedal. In fact, there's one other statement that we like to make, and we say, we have no creed but Christ, which is an ironic thing to say because to say that is, in fact, a creed. It's a statement of belief. But what the founders were getting at when they founded this tradition was on the frontier of American history, people were just separating churches and splintering off in droves, creating new creeds one after another so that you can mark who's out and who's in. It was the proliferation of creeds. In fact, the Campbells would have had no problem with the Apostolic Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedonian Creed, which are the three of the most prominent ancient, ancient statements of belief ancient summaries of the faith. And I bring all of it up because if I say that's one of our essentials, it's often the case that people want to go, well, you know, in our essential creed, it says that Jesus descended where? Into hell. So what's that about? I want you to open your hymnal with me. To number 359. I just think it's really funny that we have the Apostles' Creed in here, but because we have a funny relationship to creeds in our tradition, we have to call it the Apostolic Affirmation of Faith. Okay, I think it's funny. You may read this with me aloud if you wish. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, 
the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's one of the oldest summaries outside of the Bible of a biblical New Testament faith. It does say in some translations that Jesus descended into hell. But again, this is an issue of translation. This version of it gets it well. Jesus descended into death. Jesus descended into death and he raised from the dead. There is this notion out of this teaching that Jesus is Lord of the living and Lord of the dead. This is about the theocosmic power and superiority of Jesus over all things and places. This is not about an ontological, real place of eternal torment for those who happen to be born in a place before Jesus or in another country and that never had the pleasure of hearing about Jesus. I don't feel as though hell is an essential in that way. And I also want to say that any religion that's too interested in eternal punishment really runs the risk of abuse. It really runs the risk of abuse if we have punishment on the forefront of the mind because it's really easy to start excluding some and including only those we wish. It's really easy to actually use this as an argument for violence. They're bad. They don't deserve this. When I read the New Testament and I follow the teaching of Christ, what I keep coming across over and over and over is about a God who wants to love us and he loves us by becoming as us and lays God's own life down for us that we can be brought into the divine embrace. What I find is a God who wants to love you into the kingdom, not scare you into the kingdom. I was once in a preaching class when I was a student and the professor cautioned us and he said, he said, men, because we were all males in this class, he said, men, I caution you against using fear to get people to follow Christ. We said, why? Because it is a really good sales pitch for a sermon. He said, because fear is a very fleeting emotion. We are all born biologically with the ability for fear, and here's a good reason for it. If you're being chased by a polar bear, fear will help you run away. But you're not meant to live in that fear forever, in that state of anxiety and agitation. Fear comes and fear goes. But something that lasts much more is love. However you shake out on the question, know it's not a clear one. And know that the biggest picture we do have of God in the New Testament is a God who has worked on our behalf that we may know God. That's more primary than a God who's angry, who wants to send some away and keep some in. However we live our lives, let's live a life leaning in towards that love of God and share that with people because it's the love of God that will last.